That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. But whether you can hear that sound or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island. So I know what happens when these so-called experts get it wrong. This week we put some attention on the Hanford nuclear site in Washington and a public meeting taking place there in two days on the campus of the University of Washington. Daniel Noonan from Washington State Physicians for Social Responsibility talks with us about the radioactive leaks that threaten the entire Columbia River and Pacific Northwest and ongoing problems at the site, which stores 60% of all the high-level nuclear waste in the country. Later in the program, we'll replay an early nuclear hot seat interview with organic farmer and winemaker Paul Frey on the impact a nuclear accident would have on agriculture. Today is Tuesday, May 21, 2013, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. Belgium has two nuclear reactors with thousands of cracks in them, but according to the government, they are good to go, and they've declared two reactors safe to operate despite having reactor pressure vessels found to have thousands of small cracks in them. The two nuclear reactors closed last year over safety concerns, the Duel 3 and Tehange 2 reactor units. According to Asahi Shinbun, which reported the news in Japan, Duel 3 reactor has over 8,000 small cracks in it, and Tehange 2 has over 2,000. Yet, the Federal Agency for Nuclear Control considers these units to be safe and gave the go-ahead to GDF Suez to restart. Greenpeace is threatening to sue the Belgian government. So while a legal battle may be pending, reactors Duel 3 and Tehange 2 could be back up and running within three weeks. Switzerland's Mühlberg nuclear power plant has a huge crack in the core shroud inside the reactor pressure vessel. The license to operate it is set to be withdrawn by court order in June of this year. In Germany, the city of Hamburg just barely avoided a major technological disaster on May 1st when a freighter ship containing several tons of radioactive material and explosives among its cargo caught fire. The Atlantic Cartier was transporting around 9 tons of uranium hexafluoride, a radioactive, volatile, and toxic compound most commonly used as an intermediate material in the production of nuclear fuel. The vessel also had 180 tons of flammable ethanol and 4 tons of explosives at the time the fire broke out. What could possibly go wrong? It took 200 firefighters working for several hours to douse the fires. According to Anjus Jarks, Green Party spokesperson for Harbor Policy, Hamburg just managed to scrape past a catastrophe on May 1st. It is a monstrosity that the government did not inform the public about this near-catastrophe of its own initiative. One has to speak of a cover-up attempt. In Canada, we're learning that on February 27, a Chalk River nuclear power plant operator mistakenly closed a vital pumping system that cools the immense heat generated with the reactor's core. The Crown Corporation said the February 27th event which the official report characterized as a near-miss. 
needs to be taken very seriously. <laughs> you think? However, Atomic Energy of Canada, the operators of the nuclear power plant, says no danger during the nuclear near-miss and that the company is treating it with appropriate importance. I don't like the use of the word appropriate there because who's to determine what that relative word means? Lucas Hickson, always informable with his site Nformable, had this story. On Sunday, May 19, tens of thousands of Taiwanese marched through the capital city of Taipei, chanting slogans urging the government to cease the construction of the nuclear power project. 30,000 people! Imagine! The government is being forced to hold a referendum on nuclear power by the end of the year. Taiwan, like Japan, has been called unsuited for nuclear power plants as active seismic faults are known to run across the island. In 2011, a report by the Natural Resources Defense Council evaluated the seismic hazard to nuclear reactors around the world and placed all of Taiwan's nuclear reactors in the highest risk group, along with some of Japan's reactors. The latest polls show that some 70% of the surveyed responders oppose the completion of construction of the Lungman nuclear power plant in Taiwan, which would be the fourth nuclear facility in the country. Now dig it. Construction work on Lungman began in 1999, 14 years ago, and it has grown to be one of the most expensive and divisive projects in national history. Moving over to Japan... There was a 5.9 magnitude earthquake off the coast of Fukushima Prefecture on Saturday, May 18. Now we learn that it has caused a leak at Fukushima Daiichi, but the alarming part is that water is coming from pipes of Units 5 and 6, which we haven't heard very much about. The leakage was found on May 19 on the site patrol after the earthquake that was looking to see if there were any problems, and by golly, they found them. Japan Times reports that TEPCO now faces the fact that it must perpetually pour water over the melted cores of reactors 1, 2, and 3 via their makeshift systems to prevent the fuel from melting and burning again. But TEPCO, at its typical level of incompetence, is proposing that some of the water be dumped into the sea after processing it to remove most, but not all, of the radioactive isotopes. As we learned in last week's nuclear hot seat, This action, at this time, would be absolutely legal because international maritime law prevents the dumping of radioactive materials into the ocean only if it's coming from a vessel. If it's done from the shore, from the coast, it's not illegal. Immoral? Yes. Insane? Definitely. According to TEPCO, the processed water could, listen to this, could theoretically be safe. But in reality, TEPCO says the tritium level in the contaminated water is between 1 million and 5 million becquerels per liter when the legal limit is 60,000. And that's just, again, the legal limit, not what's appropriate for human health and safety. Here's one of the numbnuts of the weeks. Not the numbnuts of the week, but really a competitor. And that is that farmers in the city of Tamura in Fukushima Prefecture have begun planting rice in a district once designated a no-go zone because of radioactive fallout ejected by the disaster-hit Fukushima power plant. It is the first time since the March 2011 core meltdowns that rice intended for sale has been planted in any former hot zone within 20 kilometers of the power plant. 
Residents can enter without permission during the daytime, but still are not allowed to stay overnight. You know, if that rice gets hot enough, they'll be able to package it as just add water. It'll cook itself. Now that's a branding strategy. And even if they have trouble selling that rice in general, it will get its own promotion. We've learned through our friend Mochizuki from Fukushima Diary that J.R. East Station Retailing Company Limited is holding a sales promotion of Fukushima products at Nuporo Train Station in Tokyo. The promoted products include food, and the promotions will be going on until September 30th of this year. On Saturday, May 18, hundreds of people rallied at Shinjuku, Tokyo. Demanding the collective evacuation of children from Fukushima, which should have taken place more than two years ago. In New England, the Cape Downwinders, an anti nuclear power group from Cape Cod, staged a protest at the entrance to the access road of Plymouth's Pilgrim Nuclear Station on Sunday, May 19. The evacuation question is acute on Cape Cod, where vehicular access occurs over two bridges. Many protesters wore shirts that said, Evacuation plan. Swim east. State Senator Dan Wolf, who represents the Cape and Islands, said, We signed up for an energy generating plant with a 40 year life. We've gotten a 60 year old nuclear waste dump. He went on to ask, What 40 year old technology do people have in their houses? That would include phones, computers, radios, TVs, or toaster ovens from 1973. Dude, there were no personal computers in 1973. As the demonstration concluded to the singing of This Land is My Land, ten people from Cape Cod towns passed the access road gate to be arrested for trespass by Plymouth police. You go, guys. Here is one of the most convoluted stories in a truly convoluted industry. German engineering firm Siemens has won a contract from the U.S. federal government. To build a wind power facility for America's last remaining nuclear weapons plant. That's right, Germany, which is shutting down its nuclear reactors and going solar and wind, has been hired by the United States, which does not support solar, wind, or geothermal, to build a wind farm to power a nuclear reactor. I don't know, is that as twisted to you as it is to me? And dig it. This wind farm is expected to provide over 60% of the site's annual power needs. This is the Pantax Nuclear Weapons Plant near Amarillo, Texas. Here's an older story that deserves some follow up. In April of 2010, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission contracted with the National Academy of Sciences to conduct a two year study of both cancer incidence and mortality around former, current, and proposed nuclear reactor sites. The $5 million study, $5 million, they really don't want this thing to succeed. $5 million is the profit from one nuclear reactor for five days or five nuclear reactors for one day. And it doesn't go very far in today's economy, be that as it may. The $5 million study was expected to take one year to design and two more years to complete. And would be the first comprehensive government study of the health implications of the continuous release of radioactivity into the air and water around nuclear facilities. Now, let's do the math. This story was released 
in April of 2010. They said it would take one year to design this study. That would put it to April of 2011. Two more years to complete the study. April of 2013. We're in May of 2013. So where's the study? And here is the real numbnuts of the week. Transportation of high-level nuclear materials in the city of Richland, right next door to the Hanford site, requires no more than a special events permit. That's right, you can march it across town and all you have to get is the same permit that you would get for any cool Desert Nights car show or parade. According to this report, sometimes the permits are issued for three-month periods and can be used any time after heavy traffic hours. Mm -mm -mm. In one case, a contractor moved hazardous transuranic waste with a parade-type permit because meeting federal transportation packaging standards would be, quote, cost prohibitive for this one-time movement of this material, end quote. And we all know that money triumphs your health and my health every time. Department of Energy officials say the shipments are just as safe under the city permit as they would be under federal rules. Why am I not buying that? Well, as long as we're talking about Hanford, it's a perfect segue into our first interview today. Daniel Noonan works for the Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility on their Hanford program. He is one of the organizers of this week's public meeting at the University of Washington in Seattle on Hanford. Daniel Noonan, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much for having me. You are working with Physicians for Social Responsibility in Washington State. First of all, give me a sense of what your work is for them in the state. Physicians for Social Responsibility is a national organization that looks at how nuclear weapons and nuclear waste and nuclear energy impacts human health. Uh, They have some other issues, but that is the main one. And we are the Washington chapter. And one of the big issues we take on is the Hanford nuclear site. You work quite closely with activists in monitoring what's going on with the Hanford site. And we've certainly followed it on Nuclear Hot Seat. Bring us up to date on what is known as of now. In February, uh, Jay Inslee, the new governor of Washington, uh, took a tour of the Hanford site, and he was informed that there were many more tanks leaking than originally reported. There were originally reported how many tanks leaking? Uh, 67 had been the number that um, had known to have leaked. Oh, my gosh, and this is out of how many? 177. These tanks were originally built in the 40s and 50s to be 20 to 30 years old because they thought that after 20 to 30 years they would have a different plan to what to do with the waste, but the time has come and passed and there's no new plan. Right now, the Department of Energy's plan to take care of the waste is to vitrify it, which means to uh, turn the liquid waste into glass because that'll be more easily stored. It won't leak. It'll still be radioactive, though. It'll still be radioactive for a very long time, but it won't leak, uh, which that's, you know, it's an improvement. And Mm -hmm. so they'll be able to be put in steel canisters. They will be buried at Hanford, and that area will be a national sacrifice zone. It won't, I mean, it's... This stuff will be radioactive uh, for long after all of us are gone. Possibly the species as well. Most likely. Where would the vitrification have to take place? Does it have to be shipped off-site to accomplish this, or they're planning on doing this on the Hanford site? No, they're planning on doing it on the Hanford site. They, uh, it's called the vitrification plant, 
and it was supposed to be completed by uh, 1999, but it is not even close to being completed. They started building it bef uh, before they finished designing it, and over the past uh, couple years, uh, several whistleblowers uh, have stepped forward and said that there's significant flaws in the des design plan, and finally the Department of Energy has uh, slowed down building the VIT plant so they can address these needs. So there's a possibility that something that they've spent billions of dollars building won't even actually work. It's a serious issue because that is, right now is the only plan for what to do with the waste in the tanks. So in other words, you're stuck with high-level nuclear waste in rusting, old, leaking tanks that are threatening certainly the Columbia River and anything that is downstream of the Columbia River, which is the watershed for so much of the western United States. Yes. Oregon and Portland are very active in this issue because they are right on the Columbia, and then it, it exits into the Pacific Ocean. So it is really, could you know, it's a, globe, it's a global issue. What stance has Physicians for Social Responsibility taken on Hanford? We work to try to uh, educate the public and to raise awareness. Hanford was built in secret, and all through the Cold War, it was of not it was not talked about. Uh, the guys who worked at Hanford w weren't allowed to talk about their work with each other, let alone their families. And it's a very it, the, the culture of secrecy has survived, and a lot of people in Washington State don't even know it exists. And so, one of the, part of the things that we do is try to just go around the state and raise awareness. There's an event coming up in actually two days from now that will probably be passed by the time a lot of people listen to this, but it obviously is a major step towards raising public awareness about Hanford in Washington and hopefully beyond. Tell us a little bit about what the event is. The Department of Energy often has public meetings uh, about Hanford, usually uh, one in the Tri-Cities. And the Tri-Cities are just for those of us outside of the area. Richland, Pasco, and Kennewick are three cities that are referred to as the Tri-Cities, and they're right on the border of Hanford. They're right there. People who work at Hanford live in those cities. And then another one in Seattle, usually. And they weren't going to have one for quite some time. So another nonprofit that works on these issues, Hanford Challenge, approached us and asked if we wanted to make our own public meeting and to talk about tank issues. And around this time, there is a class at the University of Washington that was studying Hanford and public policy. And so we decided to recruit the students and work with them and have them plan the public meetings. The problem with Hanford and Washington State is it's mostly uh, older people who are interested in the issue. A lot of younger people either don't know about it or aren't really excited about it. And a lot of the people who are both activists and involved in this issue are getting older and they're getting near retirement age and near you know passing age. And we need a younger generation to learn about this now because learning about Hanford takes years and years. It's a very complicated issue. And so we feel that having students plan their own public meeting with some guidance from us will maybe get some of them involved for the long term. I think that's a wonderful strategy, and it is taking place at the University of Washington, so it's on campus. That was very important to us because we wanted the students who were planning the meeting to be able to convince their friends to come and with it being on campus, it's much easier. And plus, if you get coverage, hopefully you will get coverage in the student newspaper and well, student radio, any of the other media that's there, you've got a good chance of getting more information out to the younger generation. Yes, well, uh, a while ago, um, 
King 5 News in Seattle was approached by a man named Mike Jeffrey, who he worked out at Hanford. He was the one that discovered that a t one of the tanks was leaking. He was told by his superiors to recalibrate his equipment, and he said his equipment was fine. And it took about 11 months for this information to be released to the public. And it wasn't even the DOE, sorry, the Department of Energy, who released this information. It was a whistleblower going through Hanford Challenge. The, re the reason I brought him up was he approached King 5, and this spurred, they've done about five or six stories. We've caught some of them. They've been posted online, and I have to yes. say, you're very fortunate that King 5 is paying as close attention as it is. No, we are. This is some of the, this is some of the biggest media that Hanford has uh, received, media attention that Hanford has received in a long time. Mike Jeffrey, uh, this initial whistleblower, will be speaking at the public meeting. Uh, we'll also have representatives of the Yakima Nation. The land that Hanford is on, by a treaty from 1855, the Yakima Nation, as well as 13 other uh, tribes, have legal access to it, which once the area is cleaned up, there's a question of what's going to happen to it, and the Native Americans have a vested interest. So we're happy that Russell Jim will be representing them. We also have uh, a woman, uh, Cheryl Whalen, from the uh, Department of Ecology. Two That's Washington State Department of Ecology. Yeah, yes, it's the Washington State Department of Ecology. Uh, we asked the Department of Energy to send a representative. They said that uh, they have budget cuts and they would not be able to send someone. Oh, our tax dollars not at work in the right places. This is going to be taking place on Thursday, May 23rd, from 5.30 to 8.30 at night in the Husky Union Building, the Lyceum Room at the University of Washington. What do you hope is going to come out of this evening's discussion, this public meeting? One of the biggest things is that I, we, we do hope that a lot of younger people will be able to have some of their questions answered, and they will see how the Department of Energy is only going to do what the public forces them to. We have to keep a spotlight on them. We have to stay involved. We have to have citizen involvement. And I think that this public meeting will get a lot of these younger students to take this issue up. Uh, I mean, when you're in college, a lot of times students are looking for that one issue that they kind of dedicate their time to, and hopefully we can get a few of them to make Hanford that. That's a great idea, and here's a thought that comes out of the Internet marketing world, which is where I do my professional work, and that is that when you're doing a presentation or a promotion, you always have a close at the end that gives people one clear action to take. So I'm wondering if you already have a one action to take that will allow you to keep being in contact with these students, with these younger people, or whether it's something that we might be able to figure out right now. The way the agenda of the meeting is, is that uh, there's going to be perspectives. Uh, a lot of the people that I mentioned are going to talk about, you know, their perspective on the on the tanks. And then we're going to have small group discussion within individual tables. And then we're going to come back together in a big group and try to decide what next step we want to take, what we're going to do. Does Physicians for Social Responsibility in Washington have some feature on the website for people to sign up for a newsletter or alerts, which then, of course, puts them in your database. Uh, yes, yes. You can go to our website, uh, WPSR.org. We do regular updates about Hanford. So we also have a website. It's called WANMAC, the Washington Nuclear Museum and Education Center, and that's W-A-N-M-E-C.org. 
and that shows not only the history of Hanford, but also uh, its global impacts because the contamination in Hanford didn't start in Eden Hanford. It started in the Congo where they mined the uranium. There's many processing plants through the United States. There's many, many weapons tested by the United States all over the world, a lot in the Marshall Islands, mostly in Nevada, but also in Alaska, off the coast of San Diego. And we kind of trace where Hanford has connections to. And any time, of course, the fuel or the weapons or anything are transported, it's what's referred to as mobile Chernobyl because we've got highly radioactive materials that are going on our highways, that are going on our, our trains, that are going through normal parts of the United States where an accident could prove catastrophic. You're correct, and that's one of the reasons we want to get students uh, educated and interested about this because sometimes Hanford is thought of as a place that the DOE can take some of their waste. They figure Hanford's already a mess. They can use it as a site to ship other states' waste. And sometimes that comes up to a vote in Washington State. And we want students, young people, to be educated so that if this does come up to a vote, that they'll be able to, you know, make the right decision. And also that if someone's running for office, uh, whether it's the Senate, the governor, or even president, that maybe if they get a chance to ask this candidate a question, they can ask, well, what is your what is your take on Hanford? And I'm sure you can find it, but there's a very famous YouTube video where it's actually down in Portland, but someone asked Obama uh, when he was running the first time what his stance on Hanford was, and he said he didn't know what Hanford was. <gasps> oh. uh, well, he's so supported by the nuclear industry. I think well, his top supporter is the man who gave him the most money is connected with Vogel down in Georgia. He honestly said, you know, I, I don't know what Hanford is. I'm sure I'll find out in the limo ride back to the airport. But it just shows that like Hanford is such it's such a not talked about issue that even someone running for president was not briefed on it. You know, the last uh, governor race in Washington state, I don't think either candidate got one question about Hanford. And I mean billions of dollars of federal money come into this comes into the state for Hanford. You'd think it'd be a very important issue. Well, it is an important issue, but unfortunately, unless you bring it up in front of people and kind of wave it in front of them in a way that they can't ignore, as is happening here in Southern California about San Onofre, but unless you have a comparable program with some financial backing to it, it's hard to get those issues up and visible. So here's a suggestion. Can you just make it a really big and repeated theme to have the students sign up for whatever you've got the sign up for on the PSR site, the Washington site, so that you have them in the database and then you can communicate with them on a regular basis? Is that something that can be managed for the event? Yeah, yes. And one thing I'll say that students are often very, very passionate but sometimes another issue picks up that passion. And for some reason, uh, I don't know what it is about Hanford, but keeping younger people involved for a long time, uh, it's, it's, it's proved to be difficult. And we, we're working on that. Hanford Challenge is working on that. Another nonprofit called Heart of America Northwest, we're all working on that. Isn't there some big camping outdoor store that is headquartered in Washington State? I think REI, maybe? REI, yes, REI. Okay, REI is there, and those are people who are passionate about the outdoors and certainly would have familiarity with the Columbia River Basin. Have they been approached about the potential for the destruction forever of this prized piece of wilderness because of radiation contamination? That is a good idea. I'm sure if REI 
got involved even in a small amount about raising awareness about Hanford, many more people in the state would know about it. And they'd care about it, too, because it impacts them personally in the middle of something that they love to do. And one other thing I'd like to say is that um, Hanford, it's, it's, a, it's a divisive issue in Washington State. Most, a, a lot of the reason is because for a long time, uh, the people who worked at Hanford, um, which is next to the town Richland, people who grew up in Richland had a very wonderful childhood. It was like the idealistic like 1950s town. And then it wasn't until like the 1980s that documents were released where people found out that the reason there are so many cancer clusters and thyroid problems was because of Hanford. And so there's a real like tear because a lot of people have very fond memories of growing up in Richland and their parents having worked at Hanford. And right now it's a huge employer. I mean, employment in the in Richland is, is it's almost not affected by the recession. And so it's hard to make people understand that, you know, despite the fact that it's a good employer, it has to be done correctly. People need to at least have the support to be able to look beyond their immediate paycheck and the needs of supplying for their families and realize that ultimately it's undermining their family's future. Is there a final thought or encouragement or word that you would like to share with the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat, either about Hanford or just about a perspective on the nuclear issue? Hanford is uh, a very, very complicated place. It's where the first industrial nuclear reactor was because it was the first place they didn't really know about the damage that waste would do. And if there would have been a little bit more planning and foresight, and if they weren't in such a hurry to build it, I don't think we'd be in the mess we are today. But we are, and we have to do something very soon because if that waste hits the Columbia River, the Pacific Northwest will be a very, very different place. It'll be it'd be unimaginable. But there are a lot of people in Washington who care a lot about this issue. There's the organization that I work for, uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility. There's Hanford Challenge, who is doing amazing work, especially with whistleblowers. And whistleblowers, that's one thing that we have to support and make sure that they're both supported spiritually and legally because a lot of big changes have happened at Hanford because one person wanted to do their job correctly and they wanted to do it safely and they saw that it wasn't happening that way and they risked their career and their family's happiness by stepping up and saying this isn't happening correctly, this needs to be done right and I'm going to go to the press, I'm going to go to Congress and I'm going to be heard. And so we need to support those people and we need to make sure that there's laws in place to protect them. Well, it's great to know that there are younger people like you and others being recruited to the cause in Washington State, and hopefully this will serve as a model for other parts of the country and the world, because we have international listeners to the podcast, as to some of what they can do to pull people together, put together an evening Colleges are great places to go and come up with a speak out on the local nuclear issues. And congratulations to you and the others. And I wish you every success for an over-the-top crowd showing up to hear this speak out on Thursday evening, May 23rd at the University of Washington. Thank you very much. And thank you for your work doing this, raising awareness globally.
because all nuclear issues are a global issue. Radiation knows no borders, and it goes everywhere. And it doesn't go away by itself. Daniel Noonan, thank you so much for being the guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. That was Daniel Noonan of the Washington State Physicians for Social Responsibility. We will have a link to the group's website, wamec.org, up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. For those of you who get this message in time, the event at the University of Washington in Seattle will be in Husky Union Building, Lyceum Room, 4001 Stevens Way Northwest in Seattle. It will take place on Thursday, May 23rd from 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. Great lineup. He spoke about that. If you can be there, do. And if not, we're going to look forward to it being recorded and posted online. Here's a fun activist story that I think you'll get a kick out of. Friends of the Earth has hired one of those moving billboard trucks. You know, the ones with the big message covering both sides of the truck, usually promoting a TV show or a new soft drink or something like that. Friends of the Earth put a big honking message on it. If San Onofre melts down, you're just 50 miles away. In Southern California traffic, how would you get out? Demand no restart for San Onofre. They include a text address and the website nukefree.foe.org. Is that brilliant or what? I mean, you can be stuck in traffic next to a sign to say, if there's a nuclear accident, you're going to be stuck in traffic. Brilliant. Even more fun. They can change the numbers to indicate exactly how far from San Onofre any location is. So if they stop and park somewhere, they can just change it to whatever the accurate number is for that location. Sometimes they even have people in hazmat suits to go along with the truck. I learned from FOE that the truck was hired for the weeks in the run-up to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's comment period on San Onofre restart. So they would drive around within the evacuation zone, then stop in front of iconic Southern California locations and pose for a snapshot. The truck is still in operation until the end of the month, so if you live in Southern California, keep on the lookout for it. And whether you live here or not, you can see plenty of photos of this billboard truck by going to the Facebook page, Keep San Onofre Shut Down. We will link to it on the website, along with some pictures that we're just going to pull from the site because they are so much fun. When we discuss the impact of nuclear radiation from accidents and leaks and so much more, Food safety is always an issue. Our friends of the Fukushima Fallout Awareness Network have focused on the food issue, and nutritionist Kimberly Roberson, a major mover on this issue, has kept us informed through her wonderful book, Silence Deafening, Fukushima Fallout, A Mother's Response, which I always want to refer to as a mother's revenge. They do a great job of keeping us up to date on the many aspects of the food safety issue. With their work in mind, We're rerunning an early nuclear hot seat interview with Paul Frey, an organic farmer and winemaker who, with his family, runs Frey Vineyards, an organic winery located in Mendocino County in Northern California. A longtime anti-nuclear activist, Paul has voiced specific concerns about what a meltdown at either or both of California's nuclear reactors would mean to the state's agriculture and economy, to say nothing of the health and safety of its people. 
He's also the brains behind the radiation plumes from Fukushima and Chernobyl being superimposed over a map of California to give us a graphically frightening and very real wake-up call as to where a plume could go in the wake of a nuclear accident at one of our power plants. Now Paul has put together instructions on how to create your own plume map for any nuclear facility anywhere in the world. We'll let you know the details right after the interview. How did you first get involved as an anti-nuclear activist? Well, it was way back in 78. You know, it was clear back then, you know, the inherent dangers in, in nuclear as far as from an engineering standpoint. From any standpoint, you know, it'll, it'll never be safe um, because of terrorism and, and just every possible human error. So in 78, we were involved in trying to shut down um, Diablo Canyon. We climbed over the front gate along with 500 other people. Because it was clear that you know it wasn't the future uh, direction to go. And you were how old at the time? Um, I was 16 at the time. You were arrested at that time, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's correct. Mm-hmm. So you went on to study physics at Orange Coast College in Costa Mesa. So you have a scientific approach to radiation damage as well. What is the risk here in California? Should there be an accident at either Diablo Canyon or San Onofre or, heaven forbid, both? Well, the risks are clear. Basically, all you need to do is, is, is take the fallout map from Fukushima as well as the fallout map from Chernobyl. And you, you superimpose that with the – you analyze the wind directions in California, which most of the time blow inland. With Fukushima, it was the exact opposite. Most of the time it blows out into the ocean. But in California, it's going to be exactly the opposite. Ninety-five percent of the time, it'll be going inland, whereas in Fukushima, ninety-five percent of the time, it was blowing into the Pacific Ocean. And so what you do when you take those fallout maps, you get a map that unfortunately fills up the whole L.A. basin and also San Diego. And then it also fills up what's called the Central Valley Basin, the Great Central Valley of California. It's basically a big bowl. And um, it's interesting, there was just a study uh, dated January 8th from Phys.org, which is a good website on physics. And the air basically sat there for a month in the southern end of the San Joaquin Valley, basically from Modesto southward. But you'd also get some drift up towards Sacramento. And what happens is the air just sits there for a month. And um, if Diablo Canyon melted down in an eight earthquake, because it's not made to withstand an eight, you would have all the radioactive fallout spill into that bowl, and it would fill that bowl, and Diablo Canyon only has one road going to it, so if the roads were damaged, you, you might have basically what you call a nuclear fire burning possibly for months, you know, feeding into that bowl. Or if it rained, then you get what's called a rain out where, you know, it then hits the ground much more quickly. And so the L.A. Basin, the same thing with San Onofre, um, which unfortunately is built on what appears to be sand when you when you look at it from any pictures or from Google Earth. And what sand does in an earthquake is that you get oscillations uh, set up um, that isn't the same as when you have something built on rock. So you have a very dangerous situation there with, I believe, about 10 million people in the in the local 50 to 70 mile radius. So obviously the topic really is a threat to people but also food. So the topic you could really say would be nuclear food because if your food is contaminated, then, of course, it's not much help 
radiation is not anything that I would want in my food. Now, going back to the map, you have created a map, have you not, that shows what the radiation patterns would be from the nuclear reactors and where they would be where they would be flowing and concentrating. Do you have that map available? It'll be available online on our Facebook page in the next couple of days. Um, my brother is the webmaster here, and, and he's got to stick it on there. So, so like I said, it's basically an exact copy of fallout patterns from Chernobyl or Fukushima superimposed after analyzing wind patterns. And it pretty much is all the agricultural land in the state and the biggest population densities is, is what gets covered as far as fallout. And now, this fallout in, J in Japan, they call it death ash. In an article they did in 2009, one of the bigger stations called it death ash. And since Fukushima, nobody's used the word death ash. And in America, they call it hot particles because the ash has nuclear particles that can bombard your tissue once you in inhale the hot particles. They also call them, in nuclear power plants, they call them nuclear fleas. If there's these particles stuck on pipes or whatever, they're very easy to pinpoint because your Geiger counter can pick it up. But right, the Geiger counter would go nuts at that point. And I know that yeah, um, Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds has spoken extensively on hot particles and the damage they do and, um, uh, and the dam damage we face. What would an accident do to the agriculture in California and beyond that to the economy and the image even of California? Oh, yeah. yeah well, let's start with organic agriculture because that's what we do. But it's not just organic, of course, it would be affected. But but basically, it would make the the term organic meaningless in California because these things are taken up by plants. See, Cesium uh, mimics potassium in the soil, and then strontium mimics calcium. So you have your radioactive cesium and strontium that are in the soil, and what you find is the plants take all that up. And it's quite frightening because what they're finding in Fukushima now is the pollen in the spring, the pollen for some reason concentrates either calcium or potassium normally, but the plant thinks it's getting the potassium or calcium, but instead it's getting the cesium, radioactive cesium and strontium. So what happens then is you would have, especially a place like the Central Valley where you already have, I think it has three times the asthma of the average in the rest of the U.S. because, as we mentioned, it's a bowl like with a lid on it, like a pot. Mm-hmm. And once the smoke settles in there, it's stuck if you have the, the the wrong weather conditions. And as you know, the LA Basin is is very similar. The Central Valley is much bigger, but the LA Basin has many more people. So as far as agriculture, the Central Valley of California could get quite contaminated. So first of all, the word organic would be meaningless if you sold stuff from California to other places. And then just agriculture in general. I've read one statistic where California grows, I believe, 20 to 25 percent of all the fruits and vegetables for the whole country, for all of America. So it would be pretty much a... It would, it would, it would wipe out our economy. It would, it would do irreparable damage to our economy, to our, our food supply, and not just for a single growing season, but ongoing for as long as the radioactivity is still active, which is thousands of years. Yeah, so so it would be definitely, you know, as we mentioned, in a worst-case scenario, um, 
one of the other uh, interesting statistics is now Chernobyl. Now, now these are low numbers because the real numbers might not be known for a long time. Chernobyl had the equivalent of 400 Hiroshima bombs of nuclear ash. You know, of course, there wasn't the detonation and the, and the shock wave and the explosions of a Hiroshima bomb, but it was the equivalent amount of nuclear ash of 400 Hiroshimas. That was Chernobyl in '86. Fukushima, the low number, and I, and I believe it might be the, only the number of what actually landed in Japan when the wind was blowing, five, you know, five percent of the time to the west, the lowest number. But again, I'll tell you why in a moment why these numbers are low and probably wrong. But the low figure was that Fukushima was 128 Hiroshima bombs of nuclear ash or fallout. So if someone were to told you were to tell you last March 11th that there's a small-scale nuclear war in Japan where 128 cities, you know, uh, you know, 128 bombs would have gone off. Yeah, that much ash is coming this way. That I think that would have surprised quite a few people. But instead, the way it was in the news was, you know, oh, well, three months into it, they said, oh, it looks as though there was three meltdowns. They didn't really say there was meltdowns until three months later. Well, this whole situation has been managed from the start so that people wouldn't be alarmed, even though alarm is an appropriate response to a situation that's dangerous. With the government damping down the statistics to try and keep everybody managed, we're all being exposed to greater and greater levels of risk, and no one is taking responsibility for it. And I want to go back to the reason why those are low numbers, the 400 equivalents, Hiroshima bombed at Chernobyl and 128 for Fukushima, is that they probably won't know the amount of, of nuclear burning that burned the atmosphere for 30 years because they're going to first have to, have to measure and take out the molten material in what's called the corium. The corium is what melted through the, the containment. So some people think the real number of Fukushima might be up to one to 2,000 or more Hiroshima bombs released, but, but, but again, they might not even get to the corium for 10 years to even look at it. So the real data might not be out for 30 years. As I said, 128 is, is the low number for Fukushima. We've been following all of these stories on uh, nuclear hot seat, and this is the first time I've heard that particular astonishing equation that Chernobyl was the equivalent of 400 Hiroshima's and Fukushima, at least thus far, is at least 128 Hiroshima bombs going off. What they say is California leads the world in a lot of areas, and it's the eighth largest economy. And here's another interesting statistic. Germany is about the fifth largest economy. They did a study, this is a government study, to analyze what would be the cost to Germany in the worst-case meltdown accidents. And the number was astounding, and this is why Germany is phasing out all their nuclear plants. They shut down seven right away, and they're phasing them all out by 2022. Um, what they found was the total damage in the worst-case nuclear meltdown scenario or terrorists meltdown scenario would be $11 trillion, and that's the fifth largest economy, and we're the eighth largest economy. So if you want to just do your own guessing as far as how damaging it would be to the eighth largest economy in the world, you can't put a dollar number on a beautiful state like this, really. I mean, 
how can you put a number on contaminating the golden state of California? You'd have to give it a different name. And it's not just California because this would be international because certainly the radiation does not stop at the borders of the state. The food contamination would take that much food either out of our food chain, which would do horrible things to the cost of food elsewhere. But, of course, the danger is the government might do the same thing that it's doing in Japan, which is just recycling the food into things like children's lunches so that it's internal contamination coming from that. And we would be in a science fiction future as opposed to anything that we would currently recognize because it would inalterably change life on planet Earth. We're not just talking about a little oops accident at a nuclear plant in the neighborhood. We're talking about something that will change the course of where the world and its people and its living creatures are going. And you're right, that's, that's nothing to gamble with. It's time for California to sort of take a, you know, if we are the eighth largest economy, you know, to take a leadership role toward the direction that we're going to take things in the future. They just installed about, you know, the equivalent of about one to two billion watts of solar power in the desert to the east of California. A billion watts is basically one nuke. You know, each one is about a gigawatt. And it only takes months to put up some of these solar installations, whereas nuclear plants take 10 years and then they're, you know, their decommissioning is pretty much into the foreseeable future. So it, California, you know, as a people, we have the choice to sort of set the direction, and the world will watch what we're, we're doing and try to go in that right direction. Well, we certainly have the opportunity to take a leadership stance by, first of all, getting the signatures that are required to get this on the ballot, which is slightly in excess of 500,000 registered California voters um, with approved signatures, which means we need to get something over 700,000 signatures on the um, uh, initiative. And then this fall, do everything we can to get it passed, despite the fact that we're going to be up against uh, some pretty, um, pretty high-powered and pretty moneyed opposition. But I believe you've also been involved in uh, a movement uh, involving GMOs, where you were, where David was able to beat Goliath. Yeah, yeah. I think the people can can do that here, and and the best way to do that, as you mentioned earlier, is um, you know, you go to CaliforniaNuclearInitiative.com. And you can download the petitions. You can turn out, if you have your own printer at home, you can make your own petitions. And it's really a grassroots thing now with the Internet where, you know, you have your, your family sign it, your relatives, your neighbors, and urge them to also print some out or, or give them copies. So uh, next week at the winery here on the 11th, Saturday the 11th, um, we're having an organic pizza, pizza, uh, California nuclear initiative meeting, and um, we're going to hand out packets, and the packets will be ready-made um, so that the, the, you have your signature sheet with, the, with the, the initiative on it and clear instructions on how to get more off the Internet, and um, that can really happen in like a, you know, no pun intended, but like a chain reaction where you, know, you can get enough people um, to get this thing. You know, by April 2nd, um, they're requesting to have uh, the petitions in, and then they have to truck them up uh, to uh, Sacramento um, and make this thing happen. Um, yeah, if, if things work out, you, you, you know, we could label GMOs by November and have these these very dangerous 
nuclear plants, which are basically pretty much on earthquake faults. I mean, you know, a few hundred yards mm -hmm. in the case of Diablo Canyon. and uh, It's about four to five uh, miles away, but it's it's under the ocean is the big one near San Onofre. Yeah, so so it, it's clearly a threat, and, and Southern California is uh, due for some, some major quakes. Um, the Carrizo Plain, which is just right east of Diablo Canyon in San Luis Obispo County is actually due for you know a, a pretty good sized quake. So it's just not worth the gamble. You just don't gamble away something like California for a few years of extra nuclear power that solar can replace. You know, in one year, there's solar companies chopping at the bit to install more wattage out there in the desert. And Warren Buffett just invested about a billion or more in some of them. So you got some big players involved with this solar thing, and they just simply don't need those plants sitting by those faults. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to realize. That was Paul Frey of Frey Vineyards. For those of you who want to create a nuclear plume map of your very own for your own local neighborhood nuclear facility, Paul is happy to share his PowerPoint on it. It's all science, no bunk. He doesn't have it posted anywhere, but you can get it by sending him an email with a request at paul at freywine.com. That's paul at F like Frank, R-E-Y, wine, W-I-N-E, dot com. Joe Mangano and friends from Radiation and Public Health Project are throwing a really great fundraiser. Wish I could be there, guys. Guests of honor are Christy Brinkley and Alec Baldwin. It's an annual luncheon that will be informative. The food is going to be great. And the speakers, the celebrity speakers, are very dedicated to the health of children and the safety of people around nuclear power plants. I know that Alec Baldwin is completely conversant on Indian Point. Christie is also on the RPHP, Radiation and Public Health Project, board. RPHP is a group of scientists and citizens that studies health hazards of radioactive releases from nuclear reactors and educates the public on findings. This is the group that backs the statistical analyses that Joe has been doing along with Dr. Janet Sherman that has given us the statistics on infant mortality in the wake of Fukushima and also on the increase in hypothyroidism who were born after Fukushima on the West Coast. These are all based on EPA statistics and their work is crucial in us proving our points to those people who really want to discount us. If you wish to buy tickets, whether you can attend or not, you can always gift it to somebody on the East Coast. They're $150 each, and you can buy them on eBay. Again, we will have a link, nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. Look for number 101. Here's the week's final thought. Sister Megan Rice and her two associates, Greg Bortier-Obed and Michael Wally, are nuclear heroes of the highest order. They're in jail right now, awaiting sentencing for the crime, the true crime, of having embarrassed our government's entire power structure by easily breaking into the most high-security nuclear site we have, armed with little more than wire cutters, the Bible, and a sense of purpose. The government is calling it sedition and wanting to put these three people away for up to 35 years. Why did she and they do it? I'll let Sister Rice speak for herself. She said, we were doing it because we had to reveal the truth of the criminality which is there. 
That's our obligation. We have the power and the love and the strength and the courage to end it and transform the whole project for which has been expended more than $7.2 trillion. The truth will heal us and heal our planet, heal our diseases, which result from the disharmony of our planet, caused by the worst weapons in the history of mankind, which should not exist. For this, we give our lives, for the truth about the terrible existence of these weapons. Yes, Sister Rice, because of your actions... We are more aware than we were. Thank you. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 21st, 2013. Material from this week's show came from enenews.com, Fukushima Diary, and Iori Mochizuki, xskfblogspot.com, The Ottawa Citizen, and formable.com, and Lucas Hickson, the Japan Times, Asahi.com, GG Press, Save the Children from Radiation.org, CommonDreams.org, Local News, NuclearNews.net, Friends of the Earth, SpoonsEnergyMatters.wordpress.com, King 5 News in Seattle, keep covering it, guys! World Nuclear News and my buddies in the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community, to which you are all invited. Come to the site, like us, really like us. The archive of all our previous podcasts is available on iTunes or at NuclearHotSeat.com forward slash blog. Go into the archive, scroll down, knock yourself out. Again, I'm looking for someone with computer skills who can help me turn this site into a searchable database. So if you have those skills or know somebody who does who would like to donate them to the program, please let me know. If you like the podcast, if you learned something, if it made you think, maybe surprise you with a laugh, Laugh! Nuclear! Are we allowed to laugh? Please, as often as possible. So help me keep it going. Nuclear Hot Seat is a completely volunteer project with ongoing expenses. So if you appreciate the show, go to the homepage at NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down and hit the Donate button. Then follow the prompts and do your part to help me keep this podcast alive. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so use us and support us as the resource we are. If you've got a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2013, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use, fair use. You have my permission to reuse this material as long as you provide proper attribution to me, the website, and email. Bonus points if you pronounce my name correctly. This is Libby Halevi of Hardistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep. Deep in your heart, there's a dream you
visualize I see a truth that conquers the lie 